Welcome to Call and Character, a podcast for not-so-casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. My name is Davey Henriksen, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. We're gearing up for season two of the podcast, and we'll begin releasing regular episodes next month. However, we wanted to release this episode a bit early, given its relevance to the tumultuous series of events over the past couple weeks. I'm joined by Jamar Tisby, a historian and New York Times bestselling author of the book, The Color of Compromise. We'll be discussing his new book, How to Fight Racism. If you enjoy our conversation today, check out Jamar's Instagram and Twitter feed for lots of good content related to his book. And now, to the conversation. On January 6, white nationalists stormed the U.S. Capitol, many of them carrying banners with phrases like, Jesus saves, and make America godly again. Various symbols and icons could be seen in the swarming crowds, including a 10-foot crucifix that rioters placed in the middle of a prayer circle, and a large gallows and noose that evoked, intentionally or not, the horrendous history of racial lynchings during the Jim Crow era. The images that started to appear were jarring and revolting but also reminders that the legacy of ethnic supremacy and nationalism has been part of the American story from its inception. The cross and the lynching tree, the hymns and racist chants, the religious piety and the white nationalism, this is America. It takes an especially adept historian, cultural critic, and public scholar to extract the historical, moral, and theological lessons from these dark, complicated images. The day before the storming of the Capitol, Zondervan Books released a new volume from the historian Jamar Tisby, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. This new work is a constructive follow-up to his first book, The Color of Compromise, a historical analysis of the American church's complicity in racial injustice. Tisby is a New York Times bestselling author, the CEO of The Witness Inc., an organization dedicated to black uplift. The Witness has two divisions, the Black Christian Collective, and the newest edition, The Witness Foundation. Find out more at thewitnessinc.com. He's also co-host of the excellent podcast, Pass the Mic. He grew up just north of Chicago and attended the University of Notre Dame. He went on to join Teach for America and was assigned to the Mississippi Delta Corps, where he taught sixth grade at a public charter school and later went on to be the principal. He received his MDiv from Reformed Theological Seminary and is presently working toward his PhD in history at the University of Mississippi, studying race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. So, Jamar, my friend, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. You sound very official. This sounds very professional. I hope <laughs> I do this interview justice. I think you have a little bit of experience doing this sort of podcast thing, so I think we'll be good. I want to ask you, jumping right into your this new exciting book that I, I had occasion to read on January 6th, no less. Mm. Um, your first book, though, I want to start here. Your first book is largely a work of historical scholarship, and it's, it's accessible. It's easy to read, but it still emerges very much from your own training as a, an academic historian. And with this new book, you're, you're veering into cultural analysis and also getting quite explicit about what Christians and people of good faith ought to do to address systemic and historical racial injustice. So why did you feel compelled to move from a historical to a constructive or normative project? And how did your historical training inform what you tell your readers 
what they ought to consider when they want to resist systemic racism. From the outset, I wanted people to take action. And even my first book, The Color of Compromise, which was a historical survey, it drew upon my academic training in history. It was 11 chapters long, and I am unashamed in saying this, it was all a setup. The first 10 chapters get you to the 11th chapter, which is called The Fierce Urgency of Now, a phrase taken from King's 1963, I Have a Dream speech. And it, it it's all about the practical actions you can take and the idea of that last chapter is that after you've read four centuries of racist history, that you would be mad, that you would have a sense of what the the Christian would call a sense of righteous anger, and that you would want to take action based on that. And then the second book, How to Fight Racism, is basically a book-length uh, uh, expansion of that last chapter. Now, they can both be read independently of one another, but they fit together and all of this, both books fit together broadly in my mind as uh, the work of racial justice and public scholarship. So I never wanted to, to strictly be an academic and write for other academics. Uh, there was always a priority on the practical for me. So even if that is doing a historical study of race and U.S. Christianity, uh, I wanted that to be accessible to the broader public. And uh, why this book, How to Fight Racism, a lot of different reasons, but it boils down to this. Uh, number one, I want to prevent harm. So racism is still hurting people and even killing people today. And we need to protect life and prevent harm uh, by fighting racism. And number two, um, whenever I talk about racial justice in whatever venue, could be a college, could be a congregation, wherever I am, the most frequent question I get is, what do we do? And I noticed in most of the literature about racial justice, it describes the problem as I did in The Color of Compromise. But then when it comes to actually doing something about the problem, that gets crammed into the end of a chapter or crammed in one chapter in the back of a book. And I wanted to, in How to Fight Racism, uh, dedicate an entire book to talking about what we can do to fight racism. And I just put these two things together right now is uh, I was flabbergasted that there wasn't another book called How to Fight Racism with those exact words. There are similar titles, but nothing with those exact words. And I think that actually speaks to um, the gap in the literature around the practical aspects of fighting racism and speaks to the fact that um, we need a lot more thought. This is just a beginning, this book, uh, but we need a lot more thought and works on the practical application after we've sort of diagnosed and described the problem of racism. So I hope this is a beginning to that conversation and um, a contribution to that conversation. I remember when I read the, the final chapter of The Color of Compromise, it did feel a bit like one of those post-credits uh, scenes at the end of a Marvel movie where it's kind of forecasting what's to come in the next installment. So it's it's interesting to hear that you thought about these books as a sort of uh, package deal. And I wanted to ask, how do these two books, the one being focused primarily on historical questions, the church's relationship to race, and then this more constructive book, how do they fit into your own personal narrative and your relationship with the American church? Or to put it differently, 
which people, which specific people are you trying to reach with each book and who are you trying to persuade? So it seems to be popular in the racial justice literature for an author to say, this is for black folks. This is for people of color. And um, this book, How to Fight Racism, is certainly that. But I, I'm, I have to be honest and say that, it, you know, by and large, it's white people who need to read a book like this. Um, because white supremacy and racism benefit white people. And so since white people largely benefit from this unjust and corrupt social stratification, they also have to be the ones to take responsibility for doing something about it. I don't mean exclusive responsibility. Uh, all of us have uh, work to do in this struggle against racism, but it's a different kind of work for different people and different people groups. So um, I do want white folks to read it. I especially want white Christians to read it. So the subtitle of this book is Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. And I articulate in the introduction why I name Christians specifically. And it's related to what I just said. Uh, white people, but white Christians in particular, have been such a big part of creating this problem of racism and white supremacy. They must necessarily be a big part of dismantling it and doing something about it. Um, so, so I think it's vital that that audience reads the book, but there's always multiple audiences. And so I do write this book uh, in particular for black people, but also other people of color. And I think they should read it for a couple of reasons. Number one, we can all stand to improve our practice, right? Like even if you've been doing racial justice work for years and years and years as a racial or ethnic minority in this country, there's still more to learn. There's still new ideas. There's still ways to improve your practice. And so I think it can help with that. The second reason I think folks should read it is because I think one of the hidden gems of the book is um, what I call essential understandings in the book. And so each chapter is structured similarly. There's some sort of opening story or illustration that kind of um, demonstrates the, the point of the chapter. And then there's two sections, essential understandings and racial justice practices. The essential understandings portion actually lays out sort of my philosophy or approach to, to um, the subject of race. And I think that black people and people of color, as well as white readers, will really get a lot out of that. It sort of gives you the background information you need for the racial justice practices that come next. And then lastly, why I think um, an audience of black people and people of color should read this book is because it's going to save you time, energy, and breath <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, I hope you can read it and uh, feel confident in it. And when somebody asks you, you know, what should we do? What's your suggestion? You don't have to give them an exhaustive list of, you know, practical steps. You can say, hey, read How to Fight Racism, take two of these and call me in the morning kind of a thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I want to I rewind the clock a little bit. You and I first had occasion to talk in late 2016, right before the national election, as I remember. 
And at the time, uh, your organization uh, had a different name, and I think it's fair to say a different set of goals in mind, probably. So I want to ask you, what happened after the election of 2016, and how did these events change you, uh, your perspective on the American church, and potentially even your own sense of calling as a scholar or a public intellectual? We all have a testimony, and um, my testimony is that of being, um, in every sense, an evangelical of evangelicals, except for the fact that I was black. And what is now the Witness Incorporated, which I founded and, and helped to lead, began as the Reformed African American Network. And the name kind of says it all. So uh, I had been exposed to this branch of Christianity called the Reformed tradition, uh, lots of different streams and strands of it, but basically, um, you know, coming out of the uh, European Protestant Reformation and, and all of that. And it's very white. <laughs> it's very European. Uh, and so when I first started this organization in fall 2011, what I had in mind was carving out a space within broader reformed circles for black people, black voices, black concerns, essentially trying to get a seat at the table. What I discovered along the way, which was absolutely highlighted with the um, presidential cycle, election cycle of 2016, was that uh, there was very little room at the table for me and others like me, and that in fact, we would make more progress by trying to build our own tables. Uh, for those who, who think that sounds divisive and separatist, understand I and many others, we've spent years trying to integrate those tables. Um, and I say integrate uh, because even though these tables are desegregated, they're not necessarily integrated. Those those are two different connotations for me. Uh, desegregated means, you know, you'll let someone in, but that doesn't mean you'll actually respond to or change in light of their presence. Uh, integration means that, that people uh, of diverse backgrounds are actually folded into the life of the organization such that the organization itself changes in terms of practice and outlook because of the presence of people who are different. Uh, that didn't happen a lot in uh, the Christian circles I was in. And so what, what we had to do and what Black Christians have had to do throughout U.S. history is form our own fellowships, uh, not because we hate white people, didn't want to be around them, but because we couldn't fully flourish. We couldn't fully lean into the dignity that we have as being beings created in the image of God within these white Christian fellowships. So my journey was um, in 2016 and 2015, really, because uh, Trump announced his candidacy in June 2015 by coming down the escalators of his own hotel and announcing that some uh, Mexican immigrants were rapists. So that that began the whole saga in, in uh, terms of the presidential election cycle. And anytime I would speak out about this man's rhetoric, his history. You remember the Central Park Five, and he's calling for the return of the death penalty in light of the now exonerated five. You remember that his uh, uh, um, apartment building rental company uh, was in legal trouble for discriminating against black people. Uh, so he had a long history of this. And in his presidential run, uh, was rearticulating 
these racist beliefs. Of course, the birther conspiracy even prior to that. So anyway, point being, I and many others were raising the alarm about his racism, his bigotry, his xenophobia. And then we get the exit polls in November 2016, where it said 80% of white evangelicals who voted had voted for this man. And that was, as we were saying uh, prior to pressing record, it was not surprising, but still shocking. Um, it, it, it was like a bucket of cold water, especially for someone like me who had invested so much time and energy into, uh, trying to be part of these white Christian fellowships from churches to seminaries, to nonprofits, you name it. Uh, so it was sort of around that time, really 2014 to 2016 with black lives matter movement folded into that, um, context that we decided, you know what? Um, you can have the labels, you can have the label evangelical, you can have the label reformed, whatever it might be. Uh, we are spending too much time justifying our presence, justifying our perspectives, and that is taking all the energy and momentum away from actually serving black people and actually uplifting black people in the context of a white supremacist society that in all kinds of ways denigrates our dignity. So we changed the name to The Witness. We intentionally set about uh, focusing and prioritizing uh, black issues, black perspectives, and not existing purely in relation to what white Christians did and the latest racist thing that came out of uh, white churches or white Christians. And um, it's been hard, but really empowering, refreshing, and absolutely necessary for us to do. I remember the podcast in which you you uttered that line about not feeling safe um, attending church with a number of like white evangelicals, eighty one percent of whom, give or take a little bit, had supported Trump. And I, looking back on that that whole sequence of events back in twenty sixteen, all the way up to the inauguration, I think you're right to call it not surprising, but shocking still. And in some senses, Trump's election was apocalyptic in the old sense of the word, where it's like a revelation of things that already existed. It's like a, it's like blaring the truth at you in ways that maybe you had been, you know, unable to see before. Mm. When I heard we said on the podcast, it, it was striking to me, but it didn't really, it didn't take me back or anything. It seemed like just a, a sort of very truthful utterance that you were, you were making in a semi-public space. I did not expect all the fires that I have to put out subsequently when <laughs> you were talking about like speaking engagements or, or you know, in, in 2017 and, and later on, but, but that sort of comment really offended people. And I, I, I didn't understand why at first in the past four, four and a half years have been a, a tremendous learning experience about how, anxious and and fragile many white evangelical Christians are when uh, people of color are expressing their fear about Trump and about not just Trump, but sort of the, the culture that he seems to embody in his own persona. That's right. That's right. And uh, there's so much to be said about this, but I, I often find that people don't really understand the costliness of speaking up about this stuff, uh, particularly for black people. And it's even um, more acute for black women. So I put out a, a post on social media uh, last week because in in wake of, I'm sure we, we might get to this, but in wake of the uh, insurrection on January 6th, so many of us were like, we tried to tell you. <laughs> or um, uh, a recent podcast episode on Pass the Mic, we entitled, We Been Done Told Y'all. 
so this wasn't new to us. And we were, you know, waving the red flag, jumping up and down, blaring the horns and all to no avail, it seems. And, and this is not new in the sense that we were sounding the alarm back in 2015, 2016 before the election. And then I put out this post on social media that, that, that articulated precisely what had happened when I personally started speaking up about this. And it was just this bullet point list, including, um, so I said, when I spoke up about Trump in 2015, 2016's Christians called the church elders on me, tried to make my ordination process as difficult as possible. They did hour-long takedowns of me on YouTube and podcasts. They uninvited me from preaching and speaking opportunities. They posted racist memes about me. They accused me of being a heretic. They told me that Christians couldn't vote for the Democratic Party of baby killers. They, they both sidesed me about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump being uh, uh, equally as bad, just in different ways. They labeled me a Marxist and a liberal, more recently cr critical race theorist, and they called me woke as a pejorative, just to name a few, right? And that, that went semi-viral because I think for a lot of people, as you mentioned, it was um, apocalyptic in the sense of revealing stuff that had already been there, but maybe they weren't aware of. So um, it has a real costliness to it. And, and what it educated me about, I thought the most controversial thing I could talk about with Christians was racism. It turns out for at least in my experience, the most controversial thing to talk about is politics, um, because it gets to issues of identity, uh, how we see the world, what we think is the good life, and also the really unholy marriage between Christianity and Republican politics in particular. So this is maybe an even more personal question, but in the same vein, when you've spent so many years working, as you said, initially to integrate the tables and now kind of creating your own tables, but still having the same, you know, conversations around race and racial injustice. And then you see so many self-identified Christians who have demonstrated uh, just an utter unwillingness to listen to you or, or apathy about the topic, or uh, as we've seen, especially in, in recent weeks and months, just outright, sometimes violent resistance to some of these conversations. Why do you keep writing about this topic? <laughs> what motivates you to keep going when you, you I, I, I have to imagine it feels like running into a brick wall over and over and over again. And what sustains you? What gives you hope that things could actually change or improve? I feel as if we really don't have a choice in speaking up about racism and injustice in general. One big reason is that people are still getting hurt by this. And so, um, you know, if there is a car that has a fatal manufacturing defect, um, people are going to continue to speak up about that until that defect is fixed. Why? Because people are going to continue to die because of as a result of this defect and and the same is true of racism in the american church uh, people are continuing to be traumatized emotionally and spiritually and harmed uh, even beyond the church because of racism and white supremacy so as long as people are being hurt i'm going to speak up about it uh, the second reason i continue to speak up about it is because um, my study of history 
And there are so many people, black people in particular, who spoke up about racism at much greater risk than myself. We can think of Ida B. Wells, who wrote The Red Record and stated the truth about lynching in the United States. And as a result of her bold investigative journalistic reporting, she was run out of her town of Memphis, run out of the South, faced death threats wherever she went. And we can go on and on and on about the list of uh, martyrs and civil rights activists who, who risked everything uh, for the sake of speaking up for justice. And so as I look at this great cloud of historical witnesses, I ask, you know, how can I keep my mouth shut um, when they sacrifice so much just for me to be able to have the opportunities I have? Thirdly, Scripture compels us. I mean, my goodness, uh, all over from Genesis to Revelation, we have the injunction, the command to speak up for the oppressed, to pursue justice. And in pursuing justice, we are pursuing the path of Jesus himself. And so uh, if we call upon the name of Christ, then it is our absolute Christian duty to continue to do this. And the last thing I'll say on this point is I actually feel emboldened to speak up about race, even in light of the continued recalcitrance of many people, Christians included, because we are building a platform where our voice can be heard. And it's just so very different, refreshing and empowering to have a platform at The Witness uh, in particular, to be able to say the things we think need to be said about racism and white supremacy and black dignity from a Christian perspective. And we are not beholden to what white Christians or white evangelicals uh, think about us or what resources they give us or don't give us, mostly don't give us. Um, but we have a platform where we can express our viewpoints and we don't have to rely on being published on their websites or being invited to their podcasts or their conferences. And that's a very different place than I was, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Um, when to rock the boat meant perhaps I would get knocked off of the boat and and uh, be left with uh, without a, any sort of life preserver or something like that. Um, in other words, we are able to interact with white people, whether they agree or disagree with us, from a position of power, which often gets a is treated as a dirty word within Christian circles. But I simply mean in this case um, the ability to uh, have some autonomy and self determination, where we can come to any table as equals rather than. Um, completely dependent on the whims and the desires of the uh, dominant group. You mentioned the events again of January 6th and the insurrection and the storming of the U.S. Capitol. And I want to dwell for just a second about some of the striking images that came out of that uh, riot and all the iconography and the religious elements, in fact, that were involved, all of which seemed like almost like a microcosm of centuries of white privilege and racial injustice in our own national history. And there are all sorts of questions that I think should emerge um, for us as we try to analyze and, and piece things together and, and figure out steps forward. But I wanted to ask you a, a question that targets a specific demographic. And one that you said, you know, is certainly part of your audience, although maybe not the primary one uh, for this book, but how can, how can white Christians who are horrified by the events that happened on January 6th, 
practically support black Christians who had to watch the Confederate flag flagrantly march through the halls of Congress. So they have a sort of emotional or visceral horror about what happened, but aren't quite sure how to translate that into practical action. So what sorts of solidarity is another way to put it? What sorts of solidarity could white Christians offer that are meaningful, even if they come at some personal cost? So speaking of cost, um, talking about literal financial cost, uh, so much of racial injustice has an economic component to it. Um, I, I, I go into this at length in my first book, The Color of Compromise, how race-based chattel slavery at, at its foundation was an economically exploitative system that uh, increased the bottom line of slaveholders at the expense of black laborers. And so that dynamic of economic exploitation persists to this day. It's changed forms in many ways. Uh, I live in the Delta where um, it is cotton country and after race-based chattel slavery for the next um, 70 to 80 years, sharecropping was the order of the day until mechanization and uh, the out-migration of jobs. And now I live in literally one of the poorest counties in the United States. So there's a historical momentum. It's not just about what was happening in the 1860s or prior. It's about the trajectory all of that put us on, uh, economically speaking. And so one of the things that, that people who are horrified at the insurrection can do to support black people and black Christians in particular is writing a check. And I know that sounds crass. And I also know it sounds very like the minimum one could do, but it makes a massive difference. Black people and black Christians specifically, we've had to do so much with so little from starting hospitals and schools on our own without state funding or the largesse of wealthy white people uh, to, you know, even up to the present day, the work we do with The Witness. And we've never had the kind of resources that white evangelical institutions have had. Uh, so so in, despite that, we've been able to do incredible things. But what if we did have the resources we needed? What if people actually put confidence in Black Christian leaders to lead? and to form organizations and to work for justice. That is something that we really need to ponder. That is something that in 2021, I hope um, your budget reflects your racial justice convictions. So that's one thing, never underestimate the power of financially supporting Black-led institutions and organizations. Number two, I really get frustrated, just to be honest, when white people who the light bulb about race just came on, you know, a day ago, a week ago, a few months ago. And because they already have some sort of platform and standing, when they start talking about racial justice, everybody turns their heads and pays attention. Meanwhile, other voices, particularly the voices of, of black people and other people of color, we've been ignored for so long, and yet we've been saying the same things. And so what white people can do, especially, is when the light bulb goes on for you, you don't have to have the microphone. <laughs> Pass the mic to uh, black leaders and other people of color 
who have been doing this work and who have been speaking up about it. Use your platform and your influence to actually turn attention away from yourself. And this is going to be the, the rub for a lot of people because you could say something and you could say something that's helpful too, but you're going to sort of have to demonstrate some humility and some solidarity by saying that even though I could say something and it might be helpful, I know that these other folks don't have the same opportunities to be heard as I do. So let me lend my platform and my support to them so that they can be heard too. Um, and that happens not just on social media with a retweet or something. This is happening at your conferences. This can happen in the, the corporate sector and the leadership uh, 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 decision makers and uh, you know the board meetings. All of that stuff are opportunities to so, uh, so to speak, pass the mic to other people who may not have the same opportunities to be heard. Lastly, there's really two more things. One, we got to confront Christian nationalism, white supremacist Christian nationalism in our churches. Much could be said about that. The first step would be to learn about it. I always re recommend the book Taking America Back for God by uh, Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, Kristen Coves Dumay, who you've had on a previous episode in her book, Jesus and John Wayne, Robert P. Jones, White Too Long. These are all white authors, but there are many other black authors who have been essentially talking about the same thing. We've had Shaniqua Walker Barnes on our podcast. Uh, um, she's written some great things about this. Anyway, learning about Christian nationalism, challenging it in your own churches was going to be at great risk to your own personal relationships and networks. And then lastly, working on a systemic and an institutional level, level especially as we're looking at the insurrection January 6th, it has a lot to do with voting rights and voter suppression. And to the extent that black people, people of color, poor people are voting in higher numbers, I think things like the insurrection are partly a backlash to the enfranchisement of historically disenfranchised groups. And so continuing to promote democracy in, you know, lowercase d uh, forms that that every a citizen has the right to vote and we should be making it as easy as possible to vote, not as hard as possible as as uh, one of the two parties is, is seems to do at every turn. Uh, those are some ways that that you can work for racial justice in the present day that will for sure have some personal cost. So let's turn from a discussion of solidarity, which is a, maybe a, a looser bond, a relational bond between people, and turn to friendship, which is a topic that occupies one of your chapters in particular. There's a wealth of wisdom in, in this chapter uh, on, on the importance of friendship in fighting racism, and I'd urge readers to check it out and, of course, read and buy your book. But I wanted to ask you a, a rather philosophical uh, question, you'll have to forgive me, uh, about the nature of friendship in light of everything else that you're talking and writing about. Uh, on one previous episode of this podcast, uh, not with Christian, but I, with a prominent Christian ethicist, uh, we talked about the problem of sameness in many of our friendships. And if you go back to even like ancient Greek discussions of the nature of friendship, Aristotle, for instance, called the friend another self, which sounds lovely, uh, but it also raises the question of whether friendship can sometimes become a more socially acceptable form of narcissism, since we often accumulate friends who look and think and act like us. So if friendships typically arise out of common interests or backgrounds or experiences. What does this imply about the possibility of friendship across racial and ethnic difference? Or I'm just going to put it more bluntly and less philosophically. 
when you, Jamar, are friends with a white brother or sister, are you friends despite your race, background, and experiences? Or do you think you can be friends because of those differences? I'll answer it this way. Um, I think one's motivation for friendships is critical here. Uh, I always talk about um it's not just about intent, but it's about impact, especially when it comes to sort of laws and policies. But in friendships, I do think intent uh, makes a big impact on the friendship. So to put it in more concrete terms, I have come to learn that there are very well-meaning white people who I call um, relationship collectors. And by that, I mean, they collect black and people of color as friends basically to to as evidence to demonstrate well hey i'm not racist and of course they probably don't explicitly think in those terms but it comes through because it's like every time we talk it's it's about race or if they sort of share publicly on social media that uh, we are, we know each other. It's sort of to show off that, hey, I have a black friend kind of a thing. Um, it's very difficult to just completely pinpoint, but, but I've learned to develop a sensitivity to that. It feels very utilitarian from that standpoint. And um, I think it's fundamentally self-centered because that friendship or that relationship is not really about the other person. It's not really about mutuality. It's about yourself. And it's about presenting an appearance uh, that you are, you know, sort of open-minded racially speaking. And uh, you, you, you are not part of the problem. You're not racist. So I think we need to be wary of that. I think that is less of a handbook kind of a thing and more about um, whether this is a relationship that helps you feel affirmed where you can let your guard down. I, I often talk about quote unquote safe people. Safe people are those with whom I can be imperfect. Um, safe people are those with whom I can be in process and not have everything sorted out and not have sort of a canned answer for, for every question or issue that comes up. Uh, those folks are emotionally mature themselves and have come to grips with their own imperfections and therefore can have grace with other people's imperfections. Um, I do have some really healthy, close relationships uh, with people across the color line in general, but with white people in particular. And what's notable about those relationships is that we don't always have to talk about race. Uh, we can talk about uh, Notre Dame football and its uh, peaks and valleys. Um, we can talk about uh, uh, other relationships, marriages or with children or something like that. We can talk about anything. And um, one of the points I make in the book is, is that when it comes to friendships across these differences, uh, the watchword is humility, not utility. Humility, not utility, meaning you know, one way to test that is uh, if you never talked about race, would you still be friends with that person? Because that's a way of getting at, am I friends with this person, you know, mainly for what they can offer me in terms of their racial awareness that they can lend to me? Or 
because this is an image bearer of God who is interesting and curious and complicated all on their own apart from this, you know, hot button topic. So those are kind of the ways. All that being said, I keep a pretty tight circle of friends, especially because m- much of my ministry is public. Uh, so it's it's difficult to tell online or with an acquaintance, you know, really what one's motivation is. Um, but I do have the friends I do have are very close and uh, really sustain me in life and in this work. So you talk about the struggle between black hope on one side and black anger or despair on the other and others in the scholarly world have technical terms for this debate uh, would be on one side, Afro pessimism and on, on the other side, black optimism uh, as a sort of generative dialectic, like between these two things. I want to ask you specifically within the Christian tradition uh, and the scriptures of the Christian tradition, how do you come down on this debate between pessimism and optimism or this dialectic between hope on one side and despair and lament on the other? What, as a Christian, do you think is the proper response to these attitudes? Is is Afro-realism a thing? Is that a term? Because if not, I want to coin it or trademark it. I've done a Google search on it and and haven't found much, but where I would come down on this Afro-pessimism, Afro-optimism is Afro-realism, right? Which I think is a very Christocentric way of, of looking at the world. It acknowledges that uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? It acknowledges that um, we are all imperfect and unholy in, in various ways. At the same time, it acknowledges that there is the chance for redemption, that in the midst of darkness, there comes a great light, that being Jesus Christ himself, but also those who follow Jesus and um, acting as his ambassadors, acting as salt and light in the world. Uh, so, so all is not lost, but there is some loss. Um, and so that, that kind of a third way between pessimism and optimism being realism. And I just don't know any other way to maneuver in the world. Uh, so I, I absolutely think we need to make space for our emotions, even the emotions, or especially even the emotions of lament, sadness, and grief in this sort of American triumphalist narrative that so many, including many Christians, promote. It's almost sinful within that ideology to express those emotions of sadness and grief and lament. And yet that's part of the human experience, especially when it comes to our national story around race and white supremacy. There is much to grieve. There are many tears to be shed over this. And we need, we need that space. It's actually healthy, right? I'm no psychotherapist or anything like that, but I've been getting therapy for years just as a proactive way uh, of taking care of myself. And um, so much of having a healthy outlook is acknowledging um, when when we feel brokenness or when we see brokenness and how that affects us. So, so we have to have those moments. At the same time, I say I don't know any other way to be in the world because to me, in addition to sort of um, the catharsis of expressing that lament and that grief, what gives me sort of hope is knowing that I have some degree of agency in the world. I cannot do everything, 
but I can do something. I cannot fix all of the problems, but I can be part of the solution. That's what I hope people come out of reading this book, How to Fight Racism, feel, is that there are some things within um, your realm of influence that you can do something positive and something good. Um, we have to hold that intention with what is realistic and, and, and uh, the forces, honestly, of evil that are pushing back against the justice and the good that we're trying to do. But at the same time, uh, I write in the introduction to the book, it's always been a small group of people who have been scrappy and gritty and resilient, who have made the most progress for justice in our world. And I want to be part of that number. Um, it is a narrow path. Um, it is a difficult path. Uh, but I'll say this, that, that what I have discovered on this journey toward racial justice is that as you pursue the good and the forces of evil push back against you and you experience that persecution for righteousness sake that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, you also experience the promise that Jesus gives, which is, I will be with you. And that has been so clear and so evident, even as the persecution has increased and become more concentrated. I have felt the presence of Jesus personally and spiritually more in my life, but also Jesus has shown his presence in and through the church, that being the people of God who I've met along the path and on this journey. And it is a promise that is so sweet that you cannot really even explain it. You have to taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. And the way that works in a broken and fallen world is that when you pursue the path of light in the midst of this surrounding darkness, that's, that's when you experience it firsthand. And you can't sit on the sidelines and know exactly what Jesus is talking about until you get on this journey. That's lovely. It makes me think, actually, um, it's a line from Daniel Berrigan, who was this anti-war pacifist Jesuit priest. And he was, I think he was summarizing the teachings of Dorothy Day herself, really estimable figure in 20th century Catholic social teaching. And he said, um, if I remember correctly, uh, we may never see the good outcome, the consequences of the thing we do, but we have to do it anyway. That was his summary of Dorothy Day's teachings. We may never see the outcome, but we have to do it anyway. And you have several lines in your book that, that I think struck at a, a similar chord for me and reminded me <laughs> of a slightly embarrassing conversation I had about a decade ago or so uh, had with a friend was a uh, person of color and we'd been talking about some particular racialized injustices uh, in, in our community and, and I was getting worked up <laughs> and uh, and I turned to him and I said, uh, well, then what should I do about it? <laughs> and he responded, I think with some gentle exasperation, he said, you know, that's a very white response to the problem because you're, you're able you're, you're used to being able to use your privilege to fix things. So your immediate response to a perceived injustice is, is to fix it immediately. And the comment has stuck with me uh, and it's haunted me. It makes me wonder, and I, I want to put this question to you, even if we can't fix things, as you just said, even if we will never see or achieve the outcomes we want, how do we find ways to sustain the sorts of actions that responsibly and virtuously hope that some good will eventually come of our actions. We do long for fruit. 
of our work and our efforts. And I think that's a, a natural desire. I think it's a good desire. I think um, we shouldn't in any way deny that that's what we want to see and, and to happen. At the same time, the longer I do this work of racial justice, the more I realize it's not simply about what happens externally and in the world, but what happens to me in the process. And so if I want to be more Christ-like, I have to do that which Jesus did and that which Jesus commands. And there's no guarantee that um, the Lord in, in grace will allow me to see the fruit of that labor. Um, but it's still the right thing to do. We don't do it because it, it works. We do it because it's right. And I, we need to cling to that. And we need to cling to that in faith because it takes some faith because uh, the, the, the results of our labors are not always seen or tangible. At the same time, um, we also have to develop a sensitivity for signs of hope and light in sort of unexpected ways and unexpected places. So I have to really discipline myself that when somebody sends me an email or a direct message or a text message saying how much these books have impacted them, how grateful they are that I've written them, it's so easy to just write them off as just people being nice. It's so easy to forget those comments, those you know, 10 comments and then the one negative troll out there who says something, uh, uh, critical or whatever. But to take those comments, to take those sentiments as a grace, to understand what it took for a person to, you know, hear about the work, decide to buy it, take the time, hours to read it, to think about it, to ponder it, to consider what it might look like for them to put these things into practice and then to 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 seek me out and to communicate their thoughts that is sacred. That is, that is a sacred act in many ways. And it might not be big. It's not a law changed. It's not a particular politician elected, uh, but it is a sign of hope and progress for me. And I've also learned, you know, that, um, I should never look for a majority or a great crowd of people to be involved in this work. It's not easy work. And so it's always going to be uh, a sort of limited number of people who, take seriously the costs of pursuing racial justice and decide that the cost of doing nothing is far greater than the cost of doing something. Um, but also learning to recognize that it's always been a, a minority of people who have taken that path and to not look for signs of um, change or effectiveness purely in numbers or growth or size, but really in the dedication of the people who are committed to this work. Um, obviously I look to history and our great cloud of historical witnesses for motivation and inspiration. I have a great community of people who are involved in this work, who are also believers who keep me motivated and talk me down from the, the, the edge, you know, frequently and who I can laugh with and cry with and pray with all of those things contribute to it. Um, but ultimately I just see in scripture and in Jesus's words that this is the way and the opposition that we're experiencing and the frustration and the disillusionment and the discouragement, it doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong. It actually could be a sign that we're doing the right things. And Jesus promises us comfort in the midst of that. So that's part of what keeps me going. I mean, the importance of exemplars of, of, 
people who stand for something is, is very important, I think, in, in both persuading people of things, but also in sustaining them in some of the difficult work we're called to. And not to make you too uncomfortable, but I, you know, I've, I've, you've been that to me at various points. I've, you, I've seen you operate in very contested, difficult white spaces and speak your message and then come back for more <laughs> despite having lived through it once already. <laughs> uh, and and that, that's very meaningful. Um, I, and I want to actually kind of close with a, a question about exemplarity. I want to do that via um, a quote, one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite 20th century writers, uh, the great Howard Thurman, mm. who writes, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times that I have heard a sermon on the meaning of religion, of Christianity, to the man who stands with his back against the wall. It is urgent that my meaning be made crystal clear. The masses of men live with their backs constantly against the wall. They are the poor, the disinherited, the dispossessed. What does our religion say to them? So if the number of religious voices in our time is relatively few that speak in this way to the disinherited, who does stand out in this respect? Who are the voices speaking to the people with their backs against the wall that you want listeners to this podcast to pay attention to, to read, to listen to? So there are the usual suspects. Um, contemporarily, I think if you are not following the work of Brie Newsom Bass, you are really missing out. She's a black Christian woman, an artist and an organizer. She took down the Confederate flag in front of the state house in South Carolina after the Emanuel Nine massacre. She is incredibly insightful and incisive in dissecting our cultural moment. In addition, I look to uh, Bernice King, the youngest daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. Uh, she runs the King Center in Atlanta, is very much still on the front lines of the struggle for civil rights and racial justice, uh, very much committed to nonviolence and uh, to pursuing these issues from a Christian perspective. I think of Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, a lawyer dedicated to, uh, in particular, to getting um, uh, people on death row exonerated, uh, but also the founder of the uh, Lynching Memorial and Museum. Um, there are so many we, we we could name. I think sort of perhaps unexpected to many people, uh, many journalists are playing a prophetic role right now in a day and age when knowledge, when truth, when news is being contested. And there are many people who don't agree on self-evident facts. We have incredible journalists who um, are dedicated to to finding the truth, sorting out the the falsehoods, and presenting that to the broader public. So, uh, uh, you know, following the work of of reputable and, and credible journalists is is really helpful. We have a huge body of literature now. Um, uh, both geared toward academics and popular audiences. Uh, some of the books and authors I mentioned earlier in the show uh, would certainly be there. Uh, we're trying to do this at The Witness. So you can visit thewitnessinc.com and we have a blog, we have videos, we have social media channels, we have the fellowship, all of those things dedicated to trying to speak um, on behalf of and pass the mic to the disinherited. So we live in an information age. There's no shortage of knowledge and information available if we will but have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Thanks. And, and just uh, 
along those lines, I would encourage readers again to purchase maybe more than one copy <laughs> to yes. out uh, How to Fight Racism out from Zondervan Books uh, on January 5th officially. Too late to be a stalking stuffer, but never more timely. And also check out Jamar's excellent podcast, Pass the Mic, which I've been listening to for, for years and years. Um, Jamar, wonderful to talk to you. Um, keep up the good work and uh, blessings. Thank you, my friend. Proud to call you friend. Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. If you have any feedback or questions, follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send an email to lead.serve at valpo.edu. Our production team includes Aaron Morrison and Kim Neiman. Please subscribe to Call in Character on iTunes, Spotify, and other places podcasts are found, and leave us a comment and a rating. Until next time. Bye.